All right, if you have your copy of God's Word, uh, let me invite you to turn to Psalm 51 as we begin. Psalm 51. If you've been with us this fall, you know that we've been in a series on anthropology. We're taking a sort of a systematic approach this fall, uh, looking at the doctrine of man. What does Scripture teach about the doctrine of man? And we've looked at a few categories so far, the design of man and also the purpose of man. Uh, The goal in our time together this morning is to look at the corruption of man. So I would say like 95% of this message is not that uplifting, (laughs) but we will get to uh, the heart of the gospel at the end of our time, uh, which looks so beautiful and glorious with the backdrop of understanding our corruption. And then as I mentioned next time, we'll look at the glorification of man. So today we're going to focus on the corruption of man. So let's start in Psalm 51. Uh, Let's go down to verse 5. And this is, of course, King David writing. He says these words in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. In the second century, there was a plague known as the Antonine Plague, also known as the Plague of Galen. It was a plague that affected Asia Minor, Egypt, Greece, and Italy. And it was most likely caused by smallpox or measles. But, but at this point, it's, it's unknown for obvious reasons. But it was brought back to Rome by soldiers returning from Mesopotamia around 165 AD. And unknowingly, when they got back home, they had spread the disease, which at the time killed over 5 million people. And it was one of the main reasons for the obliteration of the Roman army, that uh, they were infected, they were sick, and they, they died. Several hundred years later, the plague of Justinian, a 6th century plague, was an outbreak of the bubonic plague, attacking lymph nodes throughout the body. But this plague afflicted people along the Byzantine Empire and the Mediterranean port cities, killing up to 25 million people. That was half the population of Europe at the time. It's been estimated by historians that at its height, this plague killed an estimated 5,000 people a day. In the 14th century, another plague known as the Black Death destroyed Europe, Africa, and Asia with an estimated total of upwards of 200 million people dying. Probably most familiar with this plague as the plague, the infection, was on fleas and rats that were part of merchant ships that traveled the ancient world. So these ships would go to land in these major urban centers, and then the people that were infected from the rats and fleas, they would enter into the land, destroying, again, almost 200 million people across three continents. It was devastating. And of course, in most recent times or recent centuries, the great influenza in 1918, early 20th century, a deadly outbreak sweeping the entire world with an estimated of 500 million people being infected. 
the mortality rate being 10 to 20 percent of those people with upwards of 25 million deaths in the first 25 weeks alone. So as you look back through history, and that's just a sample of infections and diseases and outbreaks and things like this, leading to millions and billions of deaths. But there is a greater disease, a greater corruption, and this one hasn't just affected people on three continents or people in certain centuries as compared to others, but this corruption has affected all people except for one, and that would be our Lord Jesus Christ. This disease or this corruption takes no prisoners, and it guarantees to corrupt and to kill all people. And in one sense, this disease, this infection, has everybody on death row. And of course, you know where I'm going with this. That disease, that infection, spiritually speaking, is sin. Look at Psalm 51.5 again. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. So in our time together this morning, as we gather together as men to examine the biblical category of anthropology, we're going to consider the corruption of man or the sin of man. And we'll examine this topic or this theme in, in three main categories or three main sections. We'll look at the event of the corruption of man, the extent of the corruption of man, and the end of the corruption of man. Of man. But before we deal with those categories, uh, let me set before you just a definition of what I mean when I say the corruption of man. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, referring to humanity, each individual person. Now, the confession reads, we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. Herman Bavink, a Dutch reformer, he defines the corruption of man this way. He says that sin holds sway over mind and will, heart and conscience, soul and body, over all one's capacities and powers. So with those definitions in mind, I want us to search and examine the Scriptures so the Scriptures themselves inform us on uh, your utter corruption. Uh, I told you this wasn't going to be the most uplifting <laughs> message, but I think it's foundational for us. Because not only is it the backdrop that brings people to Christ, it helps us understand that why you and I, as brothers in Christ, we still battle and fight sin. But don't miss the larger point. The larger point in our study of anthropology is it paves the way for redemption in Christ Jesus. In fact, it was David Clarkson, Clarkson that put it this way. He says, The end of the ministry of the gospel is to bring sinners unto Christ. And then he goes on to say, Their way to this end lies through the sense of their misery without Christ. So let that sort of resonate with your heart 
Think back to your own life before you came to Christ. That misery that you lived in. Misery as it relates to sin. David Clarkson is bringing to attention to the fact that we are miserable sinners that are in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's begin looking at these categories. Let's start by looking at the event. The event of corruption. Adam in the Garden of Eden. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. It is in this profound chapter that we find the divine record of creation, as you know, that's brought out in a little more detail in Genesis chapter 2. And then we find the corruption of man in Genesis 3. So as you know, Genesis begins with the creation of this world. God saw everything that he had created, and of course he said it was good. And then if you look at Genesis 1.31, notice God saw everything and made indeed it was very good, referring specifically to the sixth day of creation and the fact that he had just created man. Now, when God created man, and this is what we have to understand about his creation of man, when God created Adam and Eve, although he made them very good, according to his own commentary, within that very goodness, if you will, he sovereignly allowed them the ability to sin. Now, if you're familiar with Augustine of Hippo and his fourfold state of man, he put it this way, when Adam and Eve were created... They were able to sin. They weren't created as sinners because God says that they were created very good. But they were created in such a way where they were able to sin. At the same time, Adam and Eve, they were created in, the, in a way where they were able not to sin. Or able to not sin. So Adam and Eve were created and placed in the Garden of Eden with those capacities, those abilities. And then God, if you look at chapter 2, verse 17, He gives them one restriction. He gives them one restriction. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can see that in 2.17. A crystal clear prohibition. Now as the narrative continues into chapter 3, a serpent possessed by the fallen angel Satan, according to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, approaches Adam and Eve and tempts them to disobey and disregard their prohibition in 2.17 that God had just given them. Now, the point of our time this morning isn't to exegete verse by verse this great chapter. Chapter 3, it's profound, and, and we should do that at some point. But rather... My, my point in coming to this text is to show us the event, the, the starting point of the corruption of man. The starting point. So first off here, let's look at the sin. The sin. If you notice down in verse 6, that Eve succumbs to Satan's temptation. Satan tempted her to take from the tree and eat. Of course, of course there was nothing sort of supernatural, powerful within the fruit itself. It was just the prohibition. 
She ate from the tree, disregarding God's clear-cut command. And notice at the end of verse 6 what happened. Adam, likewise, he followed suit. Now, there's a lot of debate over what sins were created or what sins were committed at this point. That's not the point of our time here. But we can assume that there were several sins that were committed according to chapter 3, verse 6. But from that moment forward, Adam and Eve had become corrupt. How do we know this? Well, the text goes on to tell us, first off, we know that they sinned because they themselves, look at this, verse 7, in a response, they recognized their own sin. So they responded in several ways. In verse 7, they recognized their own sin. They saw that they were naked. They put together leaves to cover their skin, cover their shame. So even they themselves knew that they transgressed God's law. Next, they ran from God's presence. You know this. That's down in verse 8. They ran from God's presence. God was walking around in the cool of the day. He was walking around in the garden. And it says Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife, they hid themselves in the trees from among God's presence. A third way that they responded was then that they rebuked God's character. They rebuked God's character. That's found down in verse 11. They rebuked God's character. And what I mean by that is that Adam, he didn't take responsibility. He immediately did what? Yeah. Well, God, this is, this is your problem. This is you. You did this. You gave me this woman. So they were rebuking the goodness of God. So you see the immediate effects of sin. Instantaneously, both Adam and Eve began engaging in life with new motives and new desires. And keep in mind, no one taught them any of this. No one taught them to behave this way. Now that sin had corrupted them, their mind and their heart began to operate differently. I mean, no one told them or gave them commands to cover themselves. No one told them to run away from God. Uh, no one told them to rebuke God and to question God's character and to tell God sort of their commentary on the situation. I mean, you can see that happened instantly. Joel Beakey puts it this way, and I think it's very helpful. The trees, once tangible reminders of God's goodness to them, became the instruments by which they sought to hide from God. So you can see an immediate morph in their demeanor, in their presentation, in their nature. I mean, Adam goes from naming animals to basking in the goodness of the Garden of Eden to looking out at the glorious trees, now to cutting up part of nature to cover themselves and then hiding under those trees to hide themselves from the presence of God. So it went wayward quick. In just several verses, uh, we see that. Uh, but then, Genesis 3 goes on to record a series of judgments that God issues on Satan, man, and woman. A series of judgments. And these judgments are found in the text. Again, we don't have time to work through the details, but I just want you to see how quick the corruption came. And by the time we're done with this chapter, Adam and Eve are no longer in the garden. They are out of 
the garden. So what were the judgments? Well, Satan was judged in verse 14. Woman was judged in verse 16. She would now have relationship struggles or relationship challenges. We see that with pain and childbirth and the fact that there would be a desire to rule over her husband. The final judgment we see is for men. Men will have work struggles and complications. Work will no longer be joyful, but it will be difficult, strenuous, hard, tiresome, toil and labor. And look down at the end of verse 19. Just take your eyes down to verse 19. With man's judgment came the greatest judgment of all. Verse 19, for dust you are and dust you shall return. So the greatest of all judgment was the fact that they would die. Now they would die. And, and there's really three categories of death that is presented here. First off, what's brought into the world? Spiritual death. Spiritual death. At the moment of Adam's sin, he was now spiritually dead. He was no longer in right relationship with God. Again, this is the picture of Adam and Eve being cast out of the garden. It's to demonstrate, even within their domain and where they live, that they are no longer in right relationship with God and they have been cast out. We also see that there would be physical death. Physical death. And we, this is the whole testimony of Scripture, by the way. This is your Ezekiel 18. This is your... Romans chapter 6, the consequence of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die, right? So this is the, the testimony of Scripture. And then lastly, Adam faced eternal death, simply meaning that he was cursed and condemned to eternal hell apart from Christ. So that is the event the, the corruption that took place in the garden. But what we have to understand, and again, that was just a flyover, what we have to understand is that Adam and Eve's, particularly Adam's fall into sin, it wasn't held captive to the garden. In other words, it wasn't just tied into some parameters that God had put around the Garden of Eden. In fact, their banishment from the garden not only pictures a fractured relationship with God, although at the end of our time this morning, we'll see that that relationship was renewed. But their banishment from the garden pictures a devastating reality that sin would now enter and corrupt the entire world. One commentator put it this way, Adam's expulsion from the garden sealed his doom and all of that who followed. And that takes us to the second category that we'll examine together this morning, and that is the extent, the extent of corruption, Adam outside of the garden. Well, because of Adam's one sin in the garden, two devastating realities now exist outside the garden. The first is, the corruption of the entire human race. 
the corruption of the entire human race. Now, you are familiar with Genesis. I trust that you are. And you see how sin has left Eden and gone out to the world as the Genesis narrative continues to progress. As soon as they get out of the Garden of Eden, we get into chapter 4, we see that Cain murders Abel. We see that Lamech has two wives. You'll remember the familiar verses in Genesis 6. Then the Lord, this is verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Or how about Genesis 6, 12? God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Again, that's just, that's just Genesis 6. Of course, after the flood, Genesis 9, Noah and his family get off of the ark. And you remember God, He gives those creation mandates again, be fruitful and multiply. But then He lays out what we know as capital punishment. If you shed man's blood, then your blood shall be shed or your life shall be taken. God now putting parameters on what it means and what the consequences are for killing another human being. Man is corrupt. Of course, it continues. Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. What a disaster there. People not spreading out across the world, but staying in one location, building a tower, trying to usurp God. And then just to throw one in at the end of Genesis, what about how the brothers treat Joseph. I mean, one of his own family members. So you can see quickly that every generation after Adam and Eve was corrupt. Well, how did this happen? How how did it happen? How did it go from Adam and Eve to the rest of humanity? Turn to Genesis 5. How did Adam and Eve's sin pass? How did their corruption pass to everyone else in Genesis, and ultimately to us. This is Genesis 5. Now look at verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. Now watch this verse. Here's the key. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. So how did sin get passed from generation to generation? It got passed through procreation. Verse 3 tells us that Adam became the father of his own son in his own likeness and his own image. When Adam and Eve procreated, not only was the image of God passed, we talked about that in the design of man a few, a few months ago, not only was the image of God passed on to man, but even the corruption of man was passed on. The sin of man, Adam's sin, was passed to the next generation. Now, just as an aside, and follow with me here, this is why the Abrahamic covenant has the sign of circumcision. 
You ever thought about why circumcision? Out of anything that could have been a sign for a covenant that God made with man. (laughs) Why that? Well, the fact of the matter is, is the sign was pointed at the body part responsible for producing more sinners. It was a reminder of God's goodness in Genesis 1 and 2 and the fact that man had corrupted it all and that all man could do was procreate and create more sinners. It was to be a constant reminder of that reality. Man passes their sinful, corrupt nature on to their children. Verse 5 alludes to this, by the way. Look at Genesis 5, 5. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and notice the last expression, and he died. Look at verse 8. I promise I won't go through all of these. But look at verse 8. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. That expression, and he died, is clearly tied to Genesis 2.17. God says, if you eat, you will die. Genesis 5 is a genealogy thrown right into the middle of the story. (laughs) And it's a genealogy put in place there, not necessarily just to document descendants, although that was helpful, right? Like We're grateful for that. (laughs) But to mainly document that each and every person after Adam and Eve died. One writer says, The ominous, and then he died, proves the veracity of God's warning and the outworking of his punishment imposed for sinful rebellion. Now, just as an aside, it's easy for us in our Scripture reading When we get to genealogies, we tend to do what? (laughs) We tend to skip over those. I'm so guilty of doing that, I will admit it. But what we have to see within the genealogies, it's not merely just a listing of names. There's always a specific reason that a genealogy shows up in the Old Testament and the New Testament, by the way. The genealogy in Genesis 5, again, isn't trying to give us just a list of names in the ancient world. It's to identify that the prohibition in 2.17, in fact, did come true. Man will die. Now, another example of this would be Exodus chapter 6. In the early chapters of Exodus 6, right before the plagues, all of a sudden there's this giant genealogy, like completely disrupting the story. Why would that genealogy be there? Well, to highlight Moses and Aaron as the primary figures in Exodus. At the end of the book of Ruth, right? And this is all for free, by the way. But the the end of the book of Ruth, a book about redemption, ends with a genealogy. Why? To show us that the Redeemer will come from the line of David. And then you jump forward to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 just opens with all these names, right? Another genealogy. Why? Well, it's to show us that Jesus falls in the kingly line. Luke chapter 3 is another example to show that Jesus is the son of Adam. He's a a human in a sense. All right, I'll stop. But that's just to demonstrate that genealogies have a point. And the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5 is to demonstrate that death has spread to all men. 
What God said would happen indeed happened. You sin, you die. Now, I want to be sensitive as I sort of move into this next sort of question and next topic. I want to be sensitive to it, and you'll know why once I bring it up. But have you ever thought about the theological realities as it relates to death in the womb? As it relates to death in the womb. Miscarriages, stillborns, other delicate matters, and things of that nature that we've potentially experienced within our own families or maybe people that you know. The fact is, is that we live in a fallen world, and at the moment of conception, when that new life is brought into this world, that baby, that male or female baby in the womb is indeed a sinner. We have answers for for why there's death in the womb. Genesis helps us with that. We live in a fallen world, and we are ourselves fallen sinners. So Genesis 5 is a key passage on the corruption of man, the entire human race in particular, Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. Now, we're only going to scratch the surface of this text. If you want a full treatment, and some of you may have been here for this, but Pastor Tom went through Romans 5, 12 through 21. He did four sermons of about 35,000 words on, on this portion of Scripture. I'm going to dedicate like three minutes to it. Okay, so the fuller treatment you can find on our website. It truly is one of the highlights of the book of Romans. But this passage describes how the corruption that began with Adam and Eve passes to the whole human race. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man's sin, just as through one man sin entered into the world, that one man being Adam. And notice the verse goes on to say, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now again, there's a lot that can be said about this verse and the rest of this passage going to verse 21. But what is this verse teaching from a bird's eye view? Well, this verse teaches that Adam is mankind's representative. Maybe you've also heard that Adam is mankind's federal head or even covenantal head. Now, this verse is just teaching in its most basic form that Adam was mankind, all of mankind's representative in the Garden of Eden. Now, follow with me here. This means that his sin is credited as our sin. Let me put it this way. When Adam ate, so did you. Me as well. When his sin was imputed, or when he sinned, his sin was imputed to us. Uh, This means our entire nature has been corrupted, we have been polluted, and we have no righteousness based on what Adam did. But in reality, We were in Adam. We were there with him. We were there eating of the fruit. We were there disregarding the prohibition in 2.17. That's sort of the theological undergirding of this passage. Of course, 
I mean, obviously you weren't there in a physical sense. I was not there in a physical sense. But theologically, the Scriptures present us as all actually being there in Adam. In addition to Adam being our federal head, not only do we take his pollution, not only do we take his sin because we were there in him, he's our representative, but we also take his guilt. What does that mean? We also receive the punishment. We receive the condemnation. Do you see now? So not only do we receive the sin and the corruption and the pollution, but we also see receive the consequences of those things, which would be guilt, condemnation, death. Look at verse 17 of this same chapter. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Look at verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. So, in summation, simply put, Adam's sin, guilt, corruption, pollution, condemnation, etc., all of it was given to all people. So, we've seen Genesis 5, we've seen Romans 5. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15 to see how this passage nuances it a little more. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, this chapter is known as the resurrection chapter. Paul explains the importance of the resurrection and its necessary implication for believers. So his whole point here is to document the validity of the resurrection as it relates to the gospel, the forgiveness of sins that comes with the gospel, and the fact that in the end, all believers will be resurrected like Christ and have a resurrected body in which His is the prototype. Okay, that's kind of the, the, the summary of 1 Corinthians 15. But notice verse 21. For since by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, that's Christ. Notice verse 22. For as in Adam all die... So also in Christ, all will be made alive. Paul says that death entered the world through one man, Adam. The, the point being is that Adam and his actions had an effect on everyone. This passage also teaches that Christ's resurrection will have an effect on everyone that believes. So, so that's what he's getting at. He, he's, he's putting both Adam and the second Adam, Christ, he's putting them side by side and he's comparing them. He's saying the actions of the first Adam affected the entire human race, but the resurrection of Christ, that action will affect all of those who believe in Christ. Now, that's how you see these, the parallels between the first Adam and the second Adam. We'll talk more about that just in a few moments. So not only is the entire human race corrupt, but all human hearts are corrupt. All human hearts are corrupt. So we have established that all of humanity is corrupt. 
But now the question is, how corrupt are we? How corrupt are we? Well, the answer to this question can be captured in what theologians call total depravity or radical depravity. Total depravity or radical depravity. And and, and what we mean by that is that those terms refer to the extent or the depth or the breadth of your corruption. You're corrupt, but just how corrupt are you? How corrupt am I? So what is radical depravity, total depravity? However you want to define that is, is fine. It is this. Man's entire nature, both body and soul, is radically corrupt, whereas sin has affected every aspect of his existence. Let me say it again. Man's entire nature, remember man's a two-part being, body and soul, is radically corrupt, whereas sin has affected every aspect of his existence. Okay? Now, this does not mean, listen to me, this does not mean that you are as bad as you could be. This does not mean that you are as bad as you could be. Because none of us in this room, even apart from Christ, are as bad as we could be. There, there are, are several common graces, or maybe you could even word it, general restraints that are in our world that keep people from being as wicked and bad as they could be. Oh, you could say the family unit, the family sphere. You could say um, the, the, the political fear, the sphere, whether that's local or abroad, laws, rules, regulations, um, and there's really a list that goes on. So there are things that God has created in the fabric of this world to keep people um, from being as bad as they could be. I mean, you can think of things like conscience, right? Could, would, would be another example. So this isn't saying that man and you and I, we are as bad as we could be. But let's talk about the extent of our depravity, the corruption in our heart. Let's first off look at the faculties, the operations of our mind. Man's mind is corrupt. This is often referred to as the noetic effects of the fall, that sin it affects your mind, your rationale, your intelligence. So man's mind is corrupt. His desires are corrupt. His purposes are corrupt. His intentions are corrupt. His speech is corrupt. His actions are corrupt. His thoughts, his motives. I told you this isn't the most, up, the most uplifting biblical content. But it, this is setting up the gospel. Again, men, you can think back through your lives and some of the boneheaded decisions that you've made and I have made, some of the thoughts that you've had, the actions, your speech, your motives, your desires, your purposes, all of those things. You were born into this world with that corrupt nature. You were acting in accordance with your nature. Right? That, that's what this is telling us here. Listen to how Jesus puts it in Mark 7. A great reference to review this week if you have some time. Here's what Jesus says in Mark 7. That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. Okay, now watch. Jesus sort of gives a list of these defilements coming from the heart of man. 
verse 21 of Mark 7. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Jesus says in verse 23, all these things, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So Jesus is saying, look, all these outward actions that you can visibly see with your eyes, that's an outpouring of the corrupt heart. Turn to Romans 3. Now, Romans 3 is the classic text on this. You you guys know this. Romans 3 is the classic text that deals with the operation of the mind, the faculties, uh, describing the corrupt heart. Romans 3, verses 11 through 18. Again, here, Paul strings together a series of psalms. (laughs) You know, the psalms, we often think about psalms as a, you know, a personal pattern for worship, how to under, understand the depth and the breadth of our holy God and how to worship Him. But the Psalms also give a penetrating look into the sinfulness of mankind. So Paul strings together a series of Psalms. Watch what he says, verse 11. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside and have become useless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Notice verse 13, their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving, the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. Why? Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, that was a scathing indictment of mankind, which was Paul's point in Romans 1, 2, and 3. (laughs) Because now he's going to get to the glorious gospel at the end of chapter 3 and on into chapter 4. But this is how Scripture presents mankind. Scripture also teaches, by the way, that man is a slave to sin. He's chained and shackled to sin. He cannot escape it. That's Romans 6. Uh, Put... This way, the Apostle Paul says that sin is Lord, sin is your master. Scripture also says that man is in the family of Satan, a child of Satan. That's John 8, 44, 45. We're told that man hates truth and loves lies. That's Romans 3. We're told man hates righteousness and loves iniquity. That's Romans 6. We're told that man hates light and loves darkness. That's John 3. We're told that man hates God and refuses to seek after Him. John 6. So that's just our mind. That's just our intellect. So not only does Scripture speak about our faculties, Scripture also speaks about our capabilities. And what I mean by that is being able to act or your actions. So I'm going to put a few verses up on the screen so you can see these. The first off, man cannot or does not have the power to obey God. In your natural state, there is no human being that can obey God from the heart. In addition, there is no human being that can please God. Man cannot please God. Here's a perfect example of Paul's thought. 
<clears throat> on this reality. Notice Paul's words in Romans 8. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I mean, Paul, he just, he just flat out says it. Apart from God in the flesh, you cannot obey the law of God. You don't have the power. You don't have the capacity. You cannot do it. Try all you want. It is not possible. In addition to that, at the end of verse 8, he says, look, those who are in the flesh, referring to unbelievers, he says there isn't one unbelieving person that can please God. You cannot do it. Uh, the New Testament goes on to add that man cannot understand spiritual truths. You ever shared the gospel with somebody before and they just don't get it? Oh, what about even you prior to Christ? How many times were you faced with the gospel or biblical truths and none of them resonated, none of them took root? That's because you cannot understand spiritual truths apart from God. That's 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. It's, it's, it's impossible for him. Uh, not only that, Jesus himself says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus said, you, you can't come to Christ on, uh, on your own. Man is so corrupt and so wicked, both in his faculties and his capabilities, that he will not come to God. He cannot come to God. He does not want to come to God. It's interesting here in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draws is used later on in the Gospel of John. John chapter 21, when Jesus' disciples throw a, a net over into the Sea of Galilee and it fills up with fish, and they start dragging that net back to the shore. And Jesus says here, look, you can't come to the Father unless, unless He draws or drags you to Him. Man cannot come to Christ. And then lastly here, Jesus says that man cannot enter God's kingdom. Man cannot enter God's kingdom. Now, the classic text on this, and you know this, is John chapter 3, the interaction at night between Jesus and Nicodemus. Remember, Jesus, uh, Nicodemus rather, comes to Jesus at night, ultimately coming to Jesus to, to know and to understand how, how to be saved, how, how to be right with God. And Jesus says, look, you cannot, and this is verse 3, Jesus answers Nicodemus, says, look, truly, truly, Unless you are born again, you cannot see in the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you are the teacher of Israel. You have been abiding by the Old Testament law to the best of your abilities for years. It doesn't matter. You can't come to Christ that way. You can't enter the kingdom of God that way. You have to be born again. You see, Nicodemus thought that there was some goodness in him because of all of his works and his supposed abiding by the law of God. Jesus says, no, you can't. You cannot, I'm telling you, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Then verse, verse 6, Jesus just doubles down on that. Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Work all you want, Nicodemus, but it has to be a work of God for you to enter the kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus tells them, look, you have to be born again. You have to have a new birth. You have to, you have to become a new man. But you didn't have anything to do with your physical birth. And you know what, Nicodemus? You also have nothing to do with your spiritual birth. It has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. Which, by the way, the Holy Spirit is like the wind that blows and comes and moves as He wishes. You need a divine intervention of the Spirit of God into your life. That, that, I mean, that's where Jesus took Nicodemus. And that's the context of John 3.16, by the way. How, how, do you, how, how do you be born again? You have to believe in the one whom God sent into this world for everlasting life. You can't enter it on your own. You can't do it. You need divine help. So do you see? I hope I've, again, bird's eye view, drone's eye view here of the corruption of man. That's a hopeless situation that all of humanity is in. And here's the key, apart from Christ. Apart from Christ. Every single person that has ever been conceived has been cast into a dungeon, a prison of sin and corruption, and you cannot get out. In fact, if you were to fling open that door, fling open that dungeon, fling open that prison, the dead sinner doesn't even want out of there. The dead sinner would close that door and keep walking in his own sin. I think it was Paul Washer. I saw it on YouTube a few months back, and maybe you have as well. But Paul Washer, he sort of gives this illustration about if, the people, if God just opened up a door down in hell for everybody there and opened up the door and said, you can come out, walk to heaven, go to heaven that every person there would just slam that door shut and stay there because they love their sin. That's the truth of Scripture. Man alone cannot change their corrupt nature. That's why the prophet Jeremiah says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? It's impossible to deal with this corruption. You and I are sons of Adam, but our only hope is the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the true and better Adam. And that brings us to the last category that we're looking at, and that is the end. The second Adam outside the empty tomb. The second Adam outside the empty tomb. So how can Christ end the corruption of humanity? That is the question. How can Christ end corruption? What does his person, who he is, and his work, what he did, provide? What does Christ provide that deals with the corruption of mankind? This is what we will end our time looking at. First off, Christ's person, who he is. He is fully God and fully man. He is fully God and fully man. That, that is critical for us to embrace and hold. That is a core tenet of the Christian faith. The second Adam is fully God and fully man. He was the eternal Son of God. 
who at an appointed time took to himself human flesh. He became the God-man. That, that, that is who he is. But we also need to understand his work, Christ's work, what he did. So in order for him to deal with the corruption of man, he had to be the God-man, fully God, fully man. And in order for him to end the corruption of man, there was a specific work that he had to accomplish to redeem humanity. You see that Christ came into this world on a divine rescue mission. That's Ephesians 1. That's 1 Timothy 1.15. He came on a divine rescue mission to save sinners. And in order to do this, in order to restore the relationship between God and man and what was lost in the Garden of Eden and passed to every one of us, Christ himself had to be both God and man. That's why 1 Timothy 2.5 says that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But where all mankind transgressed God's law, broke God's law, and rebelled against God's law, inevitably falling short of the glory of God, showing mankind to be corrupt and depraved to the core, it was not so with Christ. But rather, He lived a full life from conception to adulthood, never once breaking God's law at any point. Not one thought, not one deed, not one desire, not one motive, not one action, nothing, never, not one. This shows Christ to be righteous and free from sin and free from corruption and free from pollution and guilt, both body and soul. All of Christ being the God-man, free from all of those realities. He actively obeyed the law of God, meeting all of its requirements his entire life. And because this, because of this, he never incurred any of the law's penalties as a result of his own actions. You know, that, that's, why, that's why it's important that Christ was conceived and born into this world, lived every stage of human life into adulthood. You know, I mean, the easy way would have been for him just to drop in as a 33-year-old man, live for a couple weeks, be free from sin, die on a cross, and he's on accomplished redemption in two weeks, and now we're saved. But the fact of the matter is he had to live a full human life obeying every single requirement of God's law. And he did so in his active obedience and his passive obedience. But, and here's where we're going with this, man. It is the cross and the empty tomb that brings the end of, of corruption. Because through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, He stands in the place of, or as a substitute for, the dead, corrupt sinner. You understand this now. Think of all of the corruption that we have talked about in our time this morning. If you have repented and believed in Christ, all of that corruption, every single ounce of it, all of that wickedness, all of that evil, all of that shame, all of that guilt, all of the pollution, all of the sin, all of the unrighteousness, all of it was credited to Christ's account on the cross. Listen, the same way that Adam's sin was imputed to you and to me, 
All of your righteous or unrighteousness, rather, your corruption was imputed to Christ on the cross. He's hanging on that cross, taking the wrath of God, not for anything he did, but for you. He bore the penalty of breaking those sins and those law, laws on the cross. And here's what's amazing. All of Christ's righteousness, his obedience, never breaking the law, always fulfilling righteousness, always being without sin, all of those realities upon repentance and faith in Christ, all of his life is credited to your account. It's, it's another divine imputation. I mean, man, that, that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our corruption is imputed to him on the cross. His righteousness is imputed to us. That's that 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's, that's the gospel. The theologian John Murray, and this is where I want to end, he says it this way. It is the righteousness of Christ wrought by him in human nature, the righteousness of his obedience unto death, even the death of the cross. But as such, it is the righteousness of the God-man, a righteousness which measures up to the requirements of our sinful and sin-cursed situation, a righteousness which meets all the demands of a complete and irrevocable justification and righteousness fulfilling all these demands because it is righteousness of divine property and character, a righteousness undefiled and inviolable. Grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Men, I've, I've said it. There's only one way out of corruption and this corrupt world. And it is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for such hard truths that you have graciously given us. You want us to know our character and our condition because it is that horrific backdrop that we see the glorious light of the solution. Your Son, Jesus Christ, who did live a perfect life, who took upon our sin, our filthy rags on the cross, and then gave us his righteousness. So we have now been restored to you. God, but that has always been your plan. You told us back in Genesis 3 that you were going to send a seed to crush the head of the serpent. You killed the first animal clothing Adam and Eve with the animal skin, picturing ultimately what your son would do for your people. We're grateful for those realities. Grateful for our time of studying your word together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.